Chattanooga Civics is branching out in 2024. After three years of focusing solely on the city of Chattanooga, this is the first of what I hope will be many episodes related to our smaller neighboring municipalities and to Hamilton County government, interspersed, of course, with my usual Chattanooga-focused content. I hope you enjoy it. Chattanooga Civics is sponsored by Relax Tax. Getting your taxes done by a real person is way better than using an automated website, but it can be hard to find time to actually meet with an accountant. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a fully virtual tax preparation service called Relax Tax by Sagan Financial Group. Just submit your tax information safely and securely online to be reviewed and processed by one of their tax specialists. No unnecessary appointments, phone calls completely on your schedule. And best of all, listeners of Chattanooga Civics get 10% off Relaxed Tax by Sagan Financial Group. Just go to relaxedtax.com. That's R-E-L-A-X-E-D-T-A-X.com and use coupon code CIVICS in the client intake form. Sagan Financial Group is a local Chattanooga business and part of the proceeds will go directly to supporting this show. I'll put a link in the show notes, but again, that coupon code is CIVICS for 10% off relaxed tax by Sagan Financial Group. I would also like to thank my Patreon sponsors for supporting this show, especially the Marks family and Stephen Culp. And if you're interested in supporting the show, you can find out more at patreon.com slash chat civics. Okay, well, I am Holly Berry, and I'm the mayor of the city of Red Bank, Tennessee, and I have been mayor since I was first elected in 2020, and I was just recently re-elected in 2022, and I have a four-year term. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, This is kind of our first time on Chattanooga Civics branching out into some of our smaller neighboring municipalities, so I'm excited to learn more about Red Bank, and I want to start with just a few general questions How many people live in Red Bank? Sure. So our population is right around 12,000. I can paint you a little picture of our city if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great. Welcome to the beautiful city of Red Bank, Tennessee. (laughs) Incorporated in 1955. It was incorporated in order to actually avoid incorporation by the city of Chattanooga back when this was an unincorporated area. And... They chose to do that and create their own city. It's only about six miles tall, high, and uh, about a mile and a half wide. So pretty small, about six and a half uh, square miles in, in size. And we have become, since 1955, completely encapsulated by the city of Chattanooga. So as they anticipated, Chattanooga continued to grow and incorporate beyond and around our city limits. So we weren't a donut hole in the center of the city when we uh, became a city. Uh, But since we incorporated and Chattanooga kept expanding, now we have become a little rectangular cutout that you might see on maps as a little grayed out area if you're looking at maps of Chattanooga on the northwest quadrant of the city, north of the river. Yeah, it's interesting. So I have an old map showing the annexation history of the city of Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. And you said Red Bank was incorporated in 1955. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll try and post that for everybody listening on, on social media and kind of show 
the annexation history of Chattanooga and how it relates to the incorporation of Red Bank. Yeah, the community was known as Red Bank White Oak prior to its incorporation. And still, there's a lot of neighborhood names on the southern end of our town called White Oak. Um, so you'll see White Oak Park, uh, White Oak Road, White Oak uh, Baptist Church, things like that. Um, so that neighborhood existed. But when it was incorporated, uh, my understanding was they couldn't fit Red Bank White Oak on the exit sign. And so they had to shorten it. And I think there was already a White Oak elsewhere in Tennessee. And mm-hmm. so Red Bank won out in that battle. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what sorts of services does the city of Red Bank provide? Red Bank provides its own fire, police, and public works. And within public works, we also provide our own stormwater service. Mm-hmm. So we do not provide uh, utility services. Um, Chattanooga doesn't do most of those either. So we have private Tennessee American Water and Hickson Water Utility Services providing fresh water. We have WWTA, which is Hamilton County, providing sewer service. We have EPB providing power and internet uh, within our boundaries. So, you know, fire and police and public works keeps us pretty busy, though. Mm -hmm. As our uh, city manager likes to say, we have a fire police, and everything else, because public works (laughs) is such a broad category uh, that covers everything from trash pickup services to road repaving, uh, maintenance of our uh, parks and recreational areas, and the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, maintaining our own facilities here, of course, all those things. Great. Well, I want to jump into kind of a civic overview of Red Bank, and we'll start with uh, the city council. How many city councilors do you all have? So, zero. We have five commissioners. Commissioners. <laughs> there you go. It does, it's, a, it's a pretty fine distinction. Um, everybody calls their, uh, their representatives something else, council people, commissioners, aldermen. Um, so in Red Bank, we have a commission, and it's got five members. And those members are elected um, in staggered terms. So we have Mm -hmm. four-year terms, but in one election year, three of the five seats will be on the ballot. That was last year for us. And then another election year, uh, or two years ago, new year, I'm still getting used to it. Um, So in 2022, we had three seats on the ballot. This year in 2024, we'll have two seats on the ballot. Mm Um, and those are, those are four-year terms again. So we have, um, I think the Chattanooga City Council turns over all at once. Yes. That is a little terrifying to me. I, <laughs> I like the continuity of knowing that somebody's get definitely going to carry over. And uh, not having to have your whole council worry about campaigning at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like That takes a lot of mental bandwidth to be able to have a couple of your commissioners be able to actually focus on city business and not campaigning um, is pretty helpful, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I can see the benefits of that. that <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It sounds nice to have that stability. So you said five commissioners, four-year terms, and they're staggered. Yes. And, and just to provide a comparison for our listeners who are used to thinking about Chattanooga, Chattanooga has nine councilmen, council representatives they're elected to four-year terms, and they're elected all at once. All at once, yeah. So we're I, I like our staggered system. I like having just five because that means it only takes three votes to get anything done. Mm-hmm. And also, as the chair of our meetings, having to make sure that all five members get 
to have their voice heard and express their opinion is a lot easier mm-hmm. than nine or in Hamilton County's case, 11 <laughs> members um, to all get to express themselves and, and have their voices heard. Uh, I think it's a good system, especially because we're a much smaller city. So we have a lot less land area to cover and we can represent our constituents faithfully with a much smaller number of people than we do. Uh, the districts are really strange in Red Bank, and this may be something that could change due to state law, actually. So the way that Red Bank elections have worked for those five commissioners since the city was incorporated in 1955, and the way it works in our charter, is that we have three districts, and two of the five seats are at large. Now, that's not entirely uncommon, but what is strange is that we have a hybrid system where the district that you live in only matters if you want to be a commissioner, only if you're a candidate. You have to live in that district to be eligible for that seat. However, all the seats are elected as if they are at large. So no matter what district you live in, you will see all the seats uh, up for election on your ballot. So you will get, if you live in district two, you will still get to vote for the district one and district three representatives when the election Uh comes up. Um, And that specific strange hybrid that we have, which we've spent a lot of time thinking about why it would have been set up that way. And the only good reason we can think of is just to prevent one street in the city from taking over the whole city government, for Mm -hmm. example, and spending all the city's money making their one street really nice and and ignoring the rest of the city because it forces a geographic distribution of the commissioners. Um, That's a theory. (laughs) I don't know why it was really set up that way. But that hybrid system is actually being potentially outlawed by the state uh, through state preemption. So there's only, I think, eight cities in the entire state that have that hybrid system. Mm -hmm. And one of them is Knoxville. And Knoxville was the one targeted in this recent legislation that basically says you can't do that. You either have to have districts that are elected only by their district, or you can have at large one or the other. You can't have this hybrid system. And so we are actually in conversation uh, at multiple levels of state government right now trying to get a good answer for should we uh, continue. It's it's not entirely clear whether this legislation would definitely apply to us or not, because there's some legal language in there, nomination that doesn't quite describe the way we do things. And we're determining whether we can continue doing what we do in accordance with our own charter, or whether we need to change uh, how we do our elections. If we change it, we have to choose, do we go to an all-district system or an all-at-large system. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So it'll be interesting to see how the ballot reads in November 2024. So a couple questions. First, I want to make sure I I completely understand what you're describing here. So you have, I think you said, three districts districts Mm -hmm. and two at-large commissioners, but all five of those commissioners end up on a single ballot? Yes, and every resident of Red Bank votes on every commissioner. As if the seats were at large. But you can only pull right. papers to be a candidate for a district. For your district. If you live okay. in a district. So, so I'm actually the... 
I did not, there's no mayor on our ballot. That's important to know as well. There's no mayor or vice mayor. There's the, the titles that you will see on our ballots in past years will be Red Bank Commission District 1, mm-hmm. District 2, District 3, Red Bank Commission at large. Those are the only seats that appear on our ballot. No mayor, no vice mayor. And after each election, every two years, the new body, the five commissioners that were elected or the, you know, whoever ended up being the five up at the dais after that election, choose from amongst themselves okay. who they want to be mayor and vice mayor for that two-year term until the next election. So I ran for district. I'm, a, I'm actually Red Bank, you know, Red Bank Commissioner District 1 is how I appeared on the ballot, both in 2020 and in 2022. Mm-hmm. And then after each of those times, we came to be sworn in. I was sworn in first as Red Bank Commission <laughs> District 1, and then we had uh, a vote, and I was selected to be mayor, and then I was sworn in a second time <laughs> as mayor. <laughs> Interesting. And that, yeah. that mayor seat is only you know four until the next election. So just okay. because I was reelected as Red Bank Representative District 1 in 2022 did not necessarily mean I would continue to be mayor, um, but I was selected once again. Right. Um, by so my the, peers. the election, your term on the commission is a four year term, mm-hmm. but the mayor is selected every two years right. by the commission internally. Right. So I will can my Red Bank Commission District one term continues until 2026. But at the end of 2024, when we swear in to commissioners from this election, we will go through that mayor process again, mm-hmm. and I may or may not be selected as mayor again. Interesting. So I want to come back to that and kind of get into what the responsibilities of the mayor are in Red Bank as opposed to how things are done in Chattanooga. Great question. Um, but but before I get to that, I want to go back to the election and the, the state preemption aspect of that. So the state is coming in and saying you either have to be districts or you have to be at large. And does that apply across the board to all of the commissioners or are they just talking about the ballot itself? If you're running for a district, only people in that district can vote. Well, we would for that representative. We would have to choose how to restructure okay. our election. So, you know, it becomes a, a liability issue of right. if we violate our own charter, that's generally not allowed. But you can violate your charter if it's overruled by state law, right. and that wouldn't be the first time that's happened. Um, but the State law is not clear on what we're supposed to do instead. So we, we would have right, to decide. Right, it's open-ended. So. Yeah, and it's the Hamilton County Election Commission um, will structure the ballot and and put what the city of Red Bank asks to be put on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can tell them, here's what we want it to say, mm-hmm. and, they'll, and that's how they'll conduct the election. Um, so that's what we have to decide. Do we want to continue... With business as usual, um, and hope that the state law would be ruled not to apply to us, or do we want to choose one of those two systems, districts, or at large? Um, and there's, you know, different implications to that. If you don't have to live in a district, then anybody can run against anybody. But if you, if we have districts. Would it be better to have five districts for five commissioners instead of having two of them be at large? If we run all at large, I mean, we may not want to have 
seats anymore, we might want to switch to the system that Signal Mountain has, where if there are two seats on the ballot, as many candidates can pull papers as they want, and whichever two candidates get the most votes get those two seats. Mm -hmm. There are no opponents. Um, That's a pretty interesting way of doing things because, in my opinion, it creates a more civil election environment because you don't have an opponent to attack. You don't know who's going to end up, you know, if you got four candidates and two seats, it's not two V two. Right. Right. You could end up working with any of those individuals. And so you don't necessarily want to mudsling, say mean things about any of those other three candidates, because you could end up being colleagues with mm-hmm. that person. Um, so you want to, you know, keep things ideally, <laughs> keep things civil and, it's kind of a, you know, may the may the best man win situation instead of this kind of, you know, rat race. <laughs> right. That's interesting. So to change the charter, how, what's the process for that? Would that have to be a referendum? So, yes, it requires a referendum to change a charter. Uh, we are a home rule city, mm-hmm. which is fairly unusual in the state of Tennessee. There's not a lot of home rule cities, which is pretty cool. Um we do still require a referendum to change charter, but we would not necessarily have to change our charter. We definitely wouldn't have to for this election. Obviously, we can't mm-hmm. vote on the charter and conduct an election under the new rules simultaneously. Um, but if we chose to change our election procedure in order to... Well, that brings you into an interesting question. Do we have to change our election con- procedure to come into compliance with state law? We could put a referendum on the ballot to change, to update our charter to comply with state law. But then what if that referendum fails? <laughs> yeah. What, we're already doing it because we have to, because right. the state, you know, preempts local government. So, um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure whether an update to our charter would even be necessary because mm-hmm. we are complying to the higher authority. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So one more question about the elections before we move on to talk about the mayoral position. Um, are the elections here partisan or nonpartisan? Do you non-partisan. Run? Thank goodness. <laughs> it's the last nonpartisan race left in the state is municipal elections um, because the state just made a school board candidate, mm-hmm. which used to be nonpartisan. They just made that partisan in this past election, which I think is the one of the worst they've done a lot of terrible things but that's one of the worst things that they've done uh to tear our communities apart because there's nothing partisan about educating our children uh republicans and democrats alike both want our children to have access to the best public education they can possibly have available to them and the idea of bringing that into this whole you know fox news (laughs) rhetoric and and national drama is such a disservice to our students so that's similar to how chattanooga does it and personally i found it very freeing yeah well discussing politics you you start to discuss people instead of parties and party platforms and issues yeah so it's absolutely absurd for a municipal election to be partisan because we don't have any control over any of those hot button national issues. Mm -hmm. The city of Red Bank makes zero decisions about immigration, Mm -hmm. about abortion, about, you know, income tax, about any of these things that would be in the national limelight and the big, you know, party talking points. We 
cover, again, fire, police, and public works. Mm -hmm. Those things are not partisan. (laughs) We want our community to be safe, and we want our community to run smoothly. Uh, We want to be able to get where we're going safely. And, you know, we want to not have potholes on our road. We want to be able to have parks to take our children to play Mm -hmm. outdoors. Those things don't have anything to do with any of the, you know, big talking points on the the talking heads on on news channels. Um, We are neighbors and we should be able to work together as neighbors. And we have more in common than we have uh, apart, especially when it comes to things in our own backyard, Mm -hmm. you know. This is this is backyard, you know, fence line, next door neighbor, coffee shop conversations. Right. This is this is not, you know, big screaming national rallies politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mostly want the same things. So I'm I'm so grateful that for now, I'm gonna knock on some wood. Our elections continue to be nonpartisan. I want to move on and talk about the mayoral position and just to provide some background for the listeners. Chattanooga has what's called a strong mayor system where the mayor is elected as an independent position from council and has a lot of executive authority and is in charge of enacting the legislation that the council passes. And so it's a full-time job. It's a, uh, it, the mayor has a lot of decision-making ability, and I'm wondering how in Red Bank, how is the mayor's position structured? What kind of authority do you have as mayor that you don't as, you know, city commissioner? So you referred to Chattanooga as a strong mayor system. So in contrast, uh, some people refer to the city of Red Bank as a weak mayor system. Uh, I prefer council manager form of government. <laughs> But the fact is true that compared to Mayor Kelly, I am quite weak in terms of authority. Um, Mayor Kelly proposes a budget that the council passes. He proposes legislation. Uh, He hires and fires employees. I have zero of those responsibilities or authorities. Um, And frankly, I prefer it that way because Mayor Kelly gets paid a full-time salary and Mm -hmm. has staff, and I am a glorified volunteer that gets paid $300 a month for my trouble and has no staff. I don't even have an office at City Hall. I come in and borrow somebody else's office, where we are right now in the city recorder's office, if I need to conduct city business in a professional setting. So it's a very different role. Mm -hmm. Um, Would I love to have an actual salary and benefits and staff? Sometimes, um, but I love our form of government. So in my opinion, it would be super cool if Chattanooga transitioned to a council manager form of government. And I'll tell you a little bit about why, which we'll also talk about the city manager's position. So you can't really talk about the mayor's responsibilities in a strong mayor system. You can't compare them to our city unless you talk about our city manager. Mm -hmm. So he has the responsibilities that Mayor Kelly would have in our city. So he, like we said, prepares a budget for our commission to pass. He proposes uh, legislation or, or, you know, gets cues legislation up that our commission collectively uh, instructs him to do. And he does hire and fire employees. Mm -hmm. If you are familiar with corporate structure, it's very much like that in that our uh, city manager is our CEO and our board of commissioners is like the board 
of a company. So we only collectively, the five of us, not any one of us, have one employee, and that's the city manager. And we hire and fire that one city manager. We have absolutely no authority uh, to affect any other employee in the entire organization. Mm -hmm. That is up to the city manager. The beauty of that system is a city managers go to school to be city managers. <laughs> so they have actual um, education, certification, experience to do exactly what they're doing. Um, I think Mayor Kelly is doing a great job with Chattanooga. But in general, strong mayors are elected uh, as a popularity contest. And it has nothing to do with your actual ability to run a city, to mm -hmm. administer a municipality. Um, it has to do with how many votes, how much money you can raise, how many votes you can get, how much support you can get. And those things are not necessarily correlated with competence and experience in running a city. The five of us hiring a city manager, um, and we use MTAS, a Municipal Technical Advisory Service through mm -hmm. UT Knoxville, in order to help us do that even, because we are not uh, even experienced necessarily in hiring and firing employees, right? So we have professional help even for that, um, which is, by the way, one of the best things that the state of Tennessee does. Mm -hmm. uh, would You should talk to MTAS sometime. They are phenomenal. <laughs> I've used, so in doing research for this podcast, I go to the MTAS website oh, all yes. the time. And anybody who really wants to like dive into some of the, the history of municipal government in Tennessee and, you know, the differences, like what we're discussing here, yeah. the difference between a strong mayor and a weak mayor they're, or a home rule city, all of that's on the MTAS website. They're a and huge I use it resource. Yeah. yeah. So our local rep is Hannah Rogers and she's uh, the management consultant um, for our district. And she is just phenomenal resource. I would not have survived my first year in office mm -hmm. without her. Um, but she has she has seen it all. She all of their management consultants are former city managers themselves. So they're very um, expert, and they have so many resources they can put together. Um, you know, they did put together for us an, an interview panel um, to professionally evaluate all of our candidates for city manager when we went through that hiring process mm -hmm. in twenty twenty one. So, anyways. All that to be said, our city manager is a professional who's trained for this job. Um, he serves at the commission's pleasure, which can come with some volatility. Um, unfortunately, the average tenure for a city manager is only like three years because um, we have, you know, two-year election cycles. So it, it can be a, a volatile position, but it gives the opportunity for a lot more continuity. <laughs> Because if you hang on to your city manager, like we plan to, <laughs> like I plan to at least for my one-fifth vote, um, they can s survive multiple administrations, multiple elections, and carry through, you know, carry the thread of the commission goals through multiple different bodies mm -hmm. and do so professionally, as well as insulate the rest of the organization. Because we could fire hire or fire a city manager, but we can't make that person hire or fire anyone else. The worst we can do is say, if you don't fire this person, we'll fire you. But that's still ultimately their decision. Mm -hmm. um, and generally, you know, I think uh, most commissions acting in good faith don't make demands like that. 
right. on their city manager. They hire a city manager who they can trust to make mm-hmm. those decisions for themselves. And that's what we've done. Um, whereas in a strong mayor system, when the mayor turns over, you could see all of city hall turnover mm-hmm. because of the number of hiring and firing and appointments that, that the strong mayor has the authority to make. I don't. So I could get replaced by uh, a new, you know, next election, say two new commissioners get elected and one of them gets to be mayor. Um, one of them is elected mayor. I'm not mayor anymore. I'm just a commissioner. That person has the title of mayor, but they can't come in and, and dismantle um, all the things that we've been working for in this city. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, there's more to it than that. And I think that gives the city, yeah, like I said, continuity, consistency, insulation from political whims um, and the ability to weather the storms of politics and elections in a much stronger way right. than a much more volatile strong mayor system. In that city manager role, is there any kind of charter protection or any framework for when the city manager can be hired or fired or replaced, or is it just at the will of the commission to say, make a motion to fire the city manager, and if it gets three votes, that's it? So that has happened. Uh, happens with some frequency in small cities across mm-hmm. the Hamilton County and elsewhere um, in our small cities coalition. Um, but the city manager has a contract, and it will have a you know, terms that are individualized to the city mm-hmm. and they will have, you know, severance usually. Okay. So even if they get fired, you know, on the spot, which ideally, if you really wanted to fire your city manager, um, first of all, you know, just for decency, you should give them let them know what your complaints are and give them an opportunity to improve and have it be an open conversation well before any kind of vote takes place. Um, But in past examples that I have seen and heard of, it is possible for one commissioner to make a motion to fire the city manager out of the blue. Ideally, this would, according to Open Meetings Act, this would need to be agendaed. Mm-hmm. at least three days in advance and notice to the public and be on the agenda for uh, discussion and a vote uh, prior to it being brought up. But it has been brought up in this spot in the past. Um, it would have to get a second. And then if it got three, in our case, three out of five votes, um, yeah, the city manager would be fired. They would still get their severance or whatever's in their contract right. um, before they would have to go. Um and then we would have to initiate the process of hiring a new city manager. Not the best way to do things and conduct business, in my opinion, because, again, with the city manager being the CEO of the city and having all the responsibilities of administrating the entire municipality, that's just something you probably don't want to do on the flip of a dime. Right. You probably want to have an interim city manager lined up uh, for carry your city through the hiring process Mm because the hiring process can take six months if you do it right. Um, You want to advertise the position nationally, give time for the applications to come in, then you have to vet those applications. You want to ideally use MTAS to 
create a rubric to go through those applications and make recommendations for you of who you want to interview. You want a panel interview, at least three or four candidates. You want a professional panel of experienced former city managers to help you with that. Um, if you do it properly, six months. Mm-hmm. So somebody's going to be running your city in the meantime. So yeah, firing your city manager on the spot, not the best move. Right. <laughs> But it is and so. It's possible. It has happened. But that contract so protects the. City it protects manager. the city manager. Mm-hmm. Provides severance, mm-hmm. so it's not even if it happens out of the blue. There's still some protection there. Yes. And then also, I imagine that contract. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine it also protects the city from somebody up and quitting on the spot without providing proper notice. Is there anything mm. to say? Like if somebody just said. I'm going to up and leave. I'm done being city manager. Would they lose their severance or anything like that? I don't know how that... Uh, yeah, severance is generally for uh, being fired. Right. Not so, for voluntary so not... resignation. But that has come up in the past too. <laughs> but there is some uh, incentive to not yes. do that. Yeah. Yes, ideally. Ideally, if the city manager chose to leave, they would put in notice and... That uh, gives the city time to find the interim and and set up the process. Yeah, at least be there here long enough to establish an interim and ideally long enough for... To, to give notice to allow us to begin the hiring process for a replacement and stay until that replacement is able to begin right. work. Right. Um, that would be an ideal situation <laughs> if, if a city manager were to choose to leave or retire. You know, some actually make it to retirement. It's, it's, um, of course, they all, they all make it to retirement, but some actually, you know, spend a career at a city. At one city. That's yeah. less common, but it does happen. Um, some cities are very fortunate to have very competent city managers who have been with them for decades. Mm-hmm. And that is the one thing that I find most interesting about the, the city manager form of government is you do end up with this class of people that does have intense professional training in this realm, but also ends up bouncing a lot between, between. various cities mm-hmm. and, and maybe doesn't have the roots that somebody who runs for mayor in a strong mayor system might have in a given place. And yeah. that, that's not to say, I mean, anybody could run for mayor. Somebody who just moved to Chattanooga could run for mayor. So it's not a given. There's no residency requirement. But it's a... Uh, length of residency That's just always something that's been interesting to me about that system. Um, so given that the city manager has all of these roles that people who live in Chattanooga mostly associate with the mayor's position, that does beg the question... What does the mayor's position entail? That's a great question. So in Red Bank, being mayor primarily means that you are the chair of the meetings. Mm-hmm. So you conduct the meetings. You make sure everything stays orderly. You make sure everybody has the opportunity for their voice to be heard, all of the commissioners, and everything stays civil. And I also uh, am one of two signatures on city checks. So I have okay. to come in city hall once a week and sign a big fat pile of checks. Um, and it's a, a, like a checks and balances, you know, to make sure there's, there's multiple set of eyes on, on money going out. And, um, trying to think if there's, that's the main thing being the chair and, oh, I serve on some other boards. So I'm a appointee to the TPO. Um, so mm-hmm. the, not even our County, but a multi-county region around us are all part of, a 
transportation planning group. Mm-hmm. We coordinate uh, projects that are being done for the transportation network uh, cross jurisdictionally, mm-hmm. and I am a a member of that. I was actually recently elected as vice chair of that board, which only meets every couple of months. Um, but it does important work. It allocates federal grant funding across our region for transportation projects. We applied for a Safe Streets for All grant as a TPO, and the constituent municipalities, such as Red Bank, signed on as co-applicants and supporters mm-hmm. to that grant, and we uh, were awarded it, which is pretty exciting. So what that means is we got a considerable amount of federal funding to identify safety issues across our region and signing on as a partner means if one of those key uh, hazards is identified in your jurisdiction that you will agree to cooperate to uh, take that money and and do that project to alleviate that safety concern Mm. Um, so that was pretty cool to to be a part of i really enjoy being a part of that because transportation is a particular um love of mine (laughs) safe transportation and and for anybody wanting to learn more about the the tpo that was one of my earliest interviews episode 20 something melissa taylor yes i sat down with melissa taylor taylor and caroline daigle i think Mm -hmm. was also part of that interview and discussed the tpo and and that planning process at length so if anybody's their ears are pricking up and they're interested in transportation uh, you can go back and listen to that interview. I highly recommend that episode. I've listened to it myself, and I've actually, um, to my fellow elected officials who were asking me questions about the TPO, I actually referred them to that episode to familiarize oh, wow. them with what they do. So thank you for doing that interview. Um, thank you. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so so does your role on that board run with the mayor's position, or is that Not kind of a personal... like? Red Bank sends a representative it's, and it doesn't have to be the mayor. It doesn't have to be the mayor. It typically is either the mayor or the city manager in okay. a small city like ours, but it can be a council person or commissioner mm-hmm. um, and different jurisdictions will send different representatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to be passionate about that topic. And so I take the default uh, position of, mm-hmm. of mayor as an appointment there. Um, and there's a lot of other mayors there, but there's also... Um, Chattanooga City Council people on that board, um, like I said, city managers and, and other um, individuals who mm-hmm. come as, as appointees representing their respective areas. Uh, I will say, because that area is multi-county, there's, I don't know, a thousand-something votes um, to vote on any topic there, and I think I represent three votes based on the population of Red Bank. Mm. <laughs> So I don't actually hold that much sway in that body, um, but I'm really passionate about the topic. So another board I'm thinking of off the top of my head in, in Hamilton County in Chattanooga, we have a shared planning commission and the mayor of Chattanooga and the mayor of Hamilton County each get a designated seat on that planning commission. Is there anything similar here? RPA? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, we uh, don't contract with RPA, actually. We contract with another organization called SETD, Southeast mm-hmm. Tennessee Development District. So we have no seat and no say at RPA, actually. But we do have a good relationship with Dan Router um, and the RPA in general. And the TPO and the RPA interact 
quite a bit, <laughs> obviously. Um, and we're we're involved with the TPO organization. So and we're does does Red Bank have its own planning commission then, or we do? Okay. Yes, we have an internal planning commission with five members that are appointed mm-hmm. by the five commissioners. And they meet once a month, generally, mm-hmm. unless they don't have anything on their agenda, right. and they'll skip a month. Uh, they have a, a work session and then a voting meeting once a month. Um, we also just hired our first in-house planner, uh, Michael Pham. He just started last year. And that's a big time first for the city of Red Bank. We've never had anything like a, a planner before. Mm-hmm. Um, city of College Dale also has their own full-time in-house planner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the only other small city that does in our area. Uh, but they do all have their own planning commissions. Right. Um, but we have Southeast Tennessee Development District serves multiple small cities in our region and a lot of rural areas. And so they have access to a lot of data and mapping that can mm-hmm. be more difficult for us to do in-house. So they're kind of like a external resource for us right. and, and for our city planner to tap into whenever he needs data. And they sort of play the same role that the, the regional planning agency plays in Chattanooga and Hamilton mm-hmm. County. Yes. Where they're reviewing the cases mm-hmm. and they Make take recommendations. It to commissions. Mm-hmm. And so on the Red Bank Planning Commission, it's all five appointed seats. There's not a seat set aside for either the mayor or the, the city commission. Well, you know, if you examine our charter you will find it says that the mayor or his or her appointee may sit on the planning commission. So I have an appointee. Uh, Her name's Kate Sconberg and she works for Hamilton County schools and she's Mm -hmm. phenomenal. Um, But I often sit in on planning commission meetings, not as a voting member, but because whatever comes before the planning commission frequently then filters up to our commission. And so I like to be informed about the issues and what's being said about, uh, the matters that I'm going to have to vote on because mm-hmm. um, they get a lot more into depth in the planning commission mm-hmm. meetings than once it comes to our commission, then it's already kind of like packaged up and tied with a bow and, and it's a, you know, up or down, up yes or, or no down. vote. Yep. And I don't know about all the nuances that went into the package that's being right. presented. Right. So it's good information to have. But if a mayor comes along, like you like sitting on the TPO because that's something you're passionate and knowledgeable about. If a mayor comes along that likes planning they could send their representative to the TPO and they could sit on the planning commission. Or they could they sit on both. Or they could sit on both. Or yeah. they could send representatives to both. Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's okay. it's pretty open. Okay, so there are some of these seats that are kind of tied where you either get to sit on the board or you get to appoint somebody mm-hmm. to yes. sit on that board. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, so I think that kind of covers kind of the civic overview of how Red Bank works and how y'all operate. And I kind of want to move into some of the issues facing Red Bank. What are what are some of the key issues that y'all are facing right now? Things that are coming before the city commission and and things that the city manager is having to deal with? Well, it's always changing. <laughs> I think, you know, big picture, what's going to really be an ongoing issue with Red Bank now and in the future is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So Red Bank, as most people know, is blowing up <laughs> and we have housing prices just skyrocketing in our city. I think it's starting to calm down a little bit with the interest rates. Um, But it's still, most houses are out of reach of the average, not only Hamilton County resident, but Red Bank resident. You know, our 
median income is like 35,000. I mean, we are not a wealthy community. We uh, are and have been very much a middle-class, working-class, blue-collar community since our inception. And we're starting to see, you know, a two-bedroom, one-bath, you know, 850-square-foot bungalows going on the market for a quarter of a million dollars, you know, people just can't afford that, especially, you know, you have a family, you need more than two bedrooms, you need a, an office, um, you know, you're starting to look at three, $400,000 um, just out of reach for a lot of people. So I think that's going to be something that we're going to have to think long and hard about as a city. When I was campaigning, I would give people the opportunity to say anything that was bothering them about the city. I would, if I knock on a door, I'd say, you know, what's important to you? What's bothering you? You know, what matters to you in Red Bank? And frequently I'd hear people express concern about, oh, they're packing too many houses and, you know, they're, they're taking these tiny lots and they're packing as many houses as they can on these tiny lots. And, um, you know, I don't like it. And that's not who we are as a community, but I found that if I talked it out with them, I think they could often begin to see the complexity of the issue because we have currently in Red Bank, and this is something that our comprehensive plan that's in progress now is going to take a a deep look at. We currently have a lot size minimum Mm -hmm. and we have a square footage minimum. So it's actually illegal to build a house under 1,400 square feet. Wow in most of Red Bank. So in R1 zone, which the majority of our city is zoned R1, you can't build a smaller house than that. The average existing home in Red Bank is only 1,100 square feet. (laughs) So it's currently illegal to build the average existing home in the city in most places. Um, I have friends who live in 900 square foot homes in Red Bank that are grandfathered in, obviously. What if that house burns down? and they have to rebuild, Mm -hmm. then they have to rebuild a 1,400-square-foot house. Would it even fit on their lot? Can they afford to build a house that big? Will their insurance cover a 50% larger house? Mm -hmm. Probably not. So that's something that we need to think about. But when I walk people through, let's say a developer found a perfectly flat, ready-to-build, developable lot that was the minimum size allowed. Already, I think you're well outside the realm of possibility. There's no structure on it that you have to demolish. It's not on a slope that you're going to have to remediate. There's not any kind of issues of any kind. Um, Okay, you found the unicorn. You found this lot. And then you build the absolute smallest house you're allowed to build, 1,400 square feet. Um, You know, people in Red Bank keep up with housing prices. They know what that house would cost. You know, probably brand new construction, 1,400 square foot on, you know, quarter acre lot. We're talking 300,000 plus. I say, can you afford that? I can't afford that. (laughs) I paid 200, I paid just under 200 for my house when I bought it in 2015 and I could not afford to buy it Mm -hmm. today. I couldn't have afforded to buy it several years ago. It had already exceeded what my husband and I could afford. Um, so who is buying that house then? Right. Probably somebody who's coming in from out of state. Maybe they're making California wages, working remote, and they can live anywhere they want. And mm-hmm. they can sell their $1.2 million house in California and pay cash for this $300,000 house 
plus $450,000 house maybe, and it's an upgrade for them and cash in the bank. Easy peasy. But our wages have not been rising Mm -hmm. in Hamilton County. Um, So do you, what's more important to you looking around your neighborhood and seeing a bunch of big houses on big lots all spread out or looking around your neighborhood and knowing that the people that teach your kids, the people that serve your coffee can afford to live in your neighborhood with you. Mm -hmm. Right. Or do you, you know, do we want to be an affluent city? Is that the identity that we want to have in 10, 20 years? Because if we keep to our current zoning and land use regulations, that's all we're allowing to be built. Mm-hmm. We will make ourselves another signal mountain on the ground. <laughs> we'll just be a low down signal mountain mm-hmm. if we keep that up. Because the only way to make housing accessible and affordable to regular working class people like us, like we, people that already live here, people that have always lived here, is to make those houses smaller and put them on smaller lots because land is an inelastic good that unfortunately is seen as an investment and not as shelter. And so it will continue going up until some much bigger forces nationally turn that around, which I'm not crossing my fingers. Um, so what we have control to do within our own community, which is not, you know, outlaw uh, international investment firms from buying up property, which would be great. We don't have the authority to do that here. What we do have the authority to do is to allow individuals and developers to build smaller, more affordable homes mm-hmm. for people to be able to live. Um, so that's what I'm, that's a big issue, I think, and, and something we're going to be taking a hard look at for the next couple years. <laughs> yeah, that's it's one. a big one. It's, it's one that <laughs> it seems like every city is dealing with right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's multiple ways to address that, you know, allowing smaller homes to be built is one, um, you know, obviously multifamily housing, um, every, everything from duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes to apartments are more efficient, you know, number of dwelling units, number of families per acre type mm-hmm. of situation. Um, a lot of people don't want apartments in their neighborhood and, and I get it. Red, a lot of Red Bank's charm is its, you know, quaint, small town neighborhood feel, all our beautiful, mature trees. And we definitely want to preserve as much of that as we can. Um, but there are ways, I think, to integrate gentle density into the neighborhoods that we have without losing their character. Um, allowing ADUs is one way, um, you know, garage apartments, basement mm-hmm. apartments, backyard uh, dwelling units, tiny homes, uh, things like that um, allow people to, you know, I've got somebody here in Red Bank who's been waiting to be able to pull a permit to put a apartment above their garage so that they can move their elderly mother to mm. be close to them where she can maintain her independence, but they can keep a close eye on her mm-hmm. and have her be close and, and part of the family. You know, we've got aging parents um, that we want to bring close. We've got children who are maybe, you know, getting ready to go off to college or start their first jobs, want a little bit more independence. If they can live in the backyard, they can have a little bit of that, save money, um, and not have to go out and get an apartment or, or, you know, stay cooped up at home for all this time. And also if somebody, there's a lot of large 
lots in Red Bank. That's part of the appeal. A lot of those lots have plenty of room for another small dwelling unit, you know, in the backyard. Mm -hmm. If we allow for that, that can also help with affordability of housing, not only because it allows if they rent that unit, then that creates a new unit of affordable housing, but it makes their home more affordable Mm -hmm. because they can offset the cost with the rental income that they're getting from the additional unit. So it, and then all those, you know, you start putting, you know, an extra unit here, an extra unit there. Now, now all the businesses in that neighborhood have more customers. So then we see our sales tax revenue go up. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all positive. Um, and I think that there are ways, you know, it depends on, on our priorities as a city, as a community. What do people want? Do they want, again, to see country club, (laughs) suburbia, spread out luxury homes? Or do they want to see, you know, that neighborhood, you know, tight knit feel um, preserved Mm -hmm. in our, and is our community the way our houses look? Is our community the people that live here? Right. So you mentioned um, your role in the TPO as well. And so I'm wondering if there's any transportation related issues that y'all are trying to tackle right now. Oh, yes. (laughs) So improving our multimodal transportation network is one of our five top commission goals for this year. And it's my personal uh, baby, (laughs) you could say. So each year, um, for the past two years, we've been doing a strategic planning uh, commission retreat. And we go through a SWOT analysis of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and all five commissioners and the city manager all participate. And we throw everything out there we can possibly think of. And then collectively we narrow it down and we select five goals for the, for the commission, for the city administration to pursue for that coming year. And multimodal transportation is, is one of those this year. And we also select a champion for each of those goals. So multimodal fell to me um, to be my my goal to just keep an eye on and, and make sure we're making progress. So I also participated in uh, Complete Streets Champions Institute, um, which is a national program that they selected, I think, maybe eight participants from across the nation. Um, and I was the only one from Tennessee uh, selected to learn about uh, Complete Streets ordinances and projects and their benefits. And we have a great opportunity here in Tennessee because actually Tennessee TDOT has been uh, collaborating with Smart Growth America to incentivize uh, complete streets projects on state routes, which is normally working on a state route is a nightmare and a red tape bureaucratic nightmare to try to get approval to do anything innovative. Um, But in Tennessee, that's not the case because we have this specific program that's being worked on, which is fantastic. Um, so in Red Bank, we are working on a Complete Streets Ordinance right now. So a lot of people might not be com- familiar with Complete Streets. So it just means that all users of the street are considered and their safety is considered in the design and execution of any project. So historically, I think most people can appreciate that the occupants, mostly single occupants of individual private vehicles, have been the one and only consideration of almost all transportation projects, not only locally, but in our nation for Mm -hmm. decades. And that tide is starting to turn 
um, both locally and nationally. So it's finally starting to be recognized that the ability to walk somewhere on your own two feet is also American freedom. (laughs) Being able to drive there is great, but being able to choose whether you walk or drive or bike Mm -hmm. or take transit is even more freedom um, and even more American. So the the ability to do that safely and the ability for all people to be able to do that regardless of, you know, means opportunity is really important. So ADA accessibility, Mm -hmm. ramps, obviously, sidewalks, crosswalks, uh, pedestrian infrastructure, bike lanes, bike infrastructure, bus lanes, bus routes, all of those things are crucial to uh, making sure that, again, all users are being considered and their safety and their ease and convenience of using the Mm -hmm. uh, transportation network that we collectively pay for as taxpayers um, that we're all able to use it. Um, and not just people that can afford to, and are able to, and want to drive a single occupant vehicle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and I think a lot of, unfortunately, that's sometimes seen as an attack on vehicle drivers, but actually complete streets are safer for drivers too. Mm -hmm. It reduces collision points. Um, it might reduce your speeds, but speed and safety are incompatible. Um, there are places that you can go fast, safely, the interstate highway. <laughs> and that's where pedestrians and, and cyclists are specifically prohibited from right. being, and that maximizes your safety as a driver. Um, but if you want to be on city streets, then it's safer for everyone, including drivers, to go slower and, um, and to be aware of your surroundings. And, and that's what we're working for in the city of Red Bank. Uh, interestingly, slower speeds and increased pedestrian traffic, both uh, slower speeds of vehicles and pedest- increased pedestrian and bike traffic are all good for business. <laughs> so if your car is going slower, you're more likely to notice the businesses on the side of the road. You're more likely to stop and pull over and go somewhere if you are going 25 miles an hour than 50. <laughs> and by the time you saw it, you've already passed it. Right. You're not going to turn around and try to make a U-turn on a 50 mile per hour road, right? But if you can, if you're going 25 miles per hour, even if you miss the sign, it's easier for you to turn around and, and go back if you want to. So it's good all around. And I'm really excited about the improvements happening on Fraser Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really sad that it took uh, two fatalities to spur action on that topic. Yeah. But I'm glad that action is finally being taken. And I am optimistic that, you know, the businesses on Frasier are going to benefit from additional, you know, having it feel safer, be safer to uh, walk and exist on that street as a pedestrian and not in a vehicle. And interesting, Frasier turns into Cherokee, which turns into Dayton Boulevard. (laughs) So, you know, we have city limits, but most people don't know where they are. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a little sign. <laughs> yeah. Tiny little sign. Tiny little green sign. When you come yep. through the tunnel, uh, most people don't really know. Even people that live in Red Bank don't necessarily know where the boundary is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all part of our community. And, you know, I and other Red Bank residents all, of course, spend time and go to Fraser Avenue regularly. So the safety improvements there benefit our community too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can hopefully continue them on up the line 
through Dayton Boulevard. Um, we want to complete our sidewalk sidewalk network. That's one of our top priorities right now. Um, right now, Red Bank has some sidewalks. Um, most of Dayton Boulevard has a sidewalk on one side or the other. So what we want to do is get sidewalks on both sides of Dayton Boulevard, mm-hmm. the entire length of Dayton Boulevard. So right now there's uh, only one segment of sidewalk north of Browntown Road. A new subdivision came in and they agreed to put a sidewalk in front of their subdivision, complete with street trees and pedestrian scale lighting. It's really beautiful. Um, and it goes right in front of their neighborhood and dead ends on both sides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so our task as a city now is to connect to that beautiful sidewalk that they've made. Um, and we have a, a repaving and restriping project slated for Browntown to Gad Road that's going to take it from... Um, that's a really strange segment of Dayton Boulevard because it starts off as five lanes, so two lanes each direction and a turn lane in the middle. And then right where you need that turn lane most, right before you turn into <laughs> our city recycling center, it disappears. And you have to sit in a lane of traffic um, in four lanes, two lanes going each way to try to make a left turn um, into that recycling center, unfortunately. And then you continue up. And then if you want to turn into that new neighborhood I mentioned, no turn lane there either. So there's a real need for, uh, from a safety perspective for a turn lane, there's frequently um, near miss accidents Mm -hmm. on that area because of the lack of a turn lane. And then when you get up to Gad Road, which is our northern city limit, it goes down to two lanes anyways. So there's really no need for the extra uh, volume because if you're actually traveling north, you're going to have to go down to two lanes anyhow. Mm-hmm. So we are uh, restriping that segment to be three lanes the entire way to the city limit. And so there will be a turn lane now um, where the recycle center and the new neighborhood are for safety. Um, that will also give enough right of way. Uh, the reason there hasn't been a sidewalk there in the past is because the city hasn't had the right of way needed beside the road to mm-hmm. do it. But if we take it down to three lanes, then suddenly we have the right of way existing that we need to finally add that missing sidewalk segment. So that's an exciting project I'm really looking forward to. Um, and then we want to continue that network all the way up and down Dayton Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a pavement condition index in progress. Um, and we have a sidewalk condition index in progress as well. It's going to map our existing sidewalks and grade them. Um, so if we have, you know, improvements repaving needed there too, it's going to be part of the consideration, not just roads, right? <laughs> not just roads, not just cars, um, everybody. Um, so all of those projects are, uh, you know, I'm just itching to get them started, get them finished. <laughs> That's exciting. Does, does Red Bank partner with Carta? At all? So we have a car to caravan service okay. in Red Bank for paratransit. So if you are over the age of 65 or temporarily or permanently disabled, you qualify. You can go online and apply for the car to service, and it's curb to curb. So you schedule it in advance, and then they will pick you up at your home and deliver mm-hmm. you exactly where you want to go. Um, we have been in conversations with Carta about the potential of uh, either microtransit and or a fixed route on Dayton Boulevard. We really have an ideal layout for it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Red Bank had its own bus service oh, until the 70s, I want to say. Um, 
And then from the 70s to the 90s, we had a contract with Carta with a fixed route on Dayton Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people use that. And people still live here who remember having it, um, whose elderly parents would use it to get to doctor's appointments. Mm -hmm. And now that's been gone since the 90s. The contract was terminated, citing budgetary concerns, and has not been taken back up since. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, recently we've been in conversation with Carta about what that would look like, what that would cost. Um, obviously we would need some infrastructure to support that. So we don't have any bus stops Mm -hmm. on Dayton Boulevard, obviously, or shelters. Um, that that would need to be added if we were (laughs) to add a fixed route, ideally. To be fair, there's not many, uh, shelters or fixed bus stops. But if we're going to get into the business of public transit, we're going to do it right. right. We're going to do it right in Red Bank. Um, so bus lanes, um, bus pullouts, you know, for the stops, um, that's all something that would need to be integrated into our, our comprehensive plan. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what the timeline would look for that, but we're, we're definitely considering it because mm-hmm. we have, you know, we're becoming an urbanized area. There's some concern that maybe we don't currently have the density to support a fixed route in the city of Red Bank, but you know, we've got a 200 plus unit apartment complex being built in the next year or two mm-hmm. on Dayton Boulevard. Um, we've been talking about affordable housing and, and gentle density and all the possibilities that we have across the city. I think, you know, like it or not, Red Bank, <laughs> as our city manager says, it's closer to the cool parts of Chattanooga than most of Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. We've got a, a catbird seat here. We've got a fantastic location close to everything convenient and people want to live here and more people want to live here than are currently able to live here. And so I anticipate, um, the density increasing in our city for sure in the coming years. So I want to lead into this one last question and we've already touched on a couple issues, you know, conversations with Carta that are ongoing. Uh, you've touched on how Fraser Avenue connects all the way through to Dayton Boulevard and it's all, you know, the name changes and the city limits change, but it's all one street. Um, but I'm wondering how else the, the city of Red Bank interacts with the city of Chattanooga and what that relationship is like. How do the two cities work together and support one another? And, and you know, if there's any points where there's tension there, too, you know, how does that relationship look? Sure. Well, you know, like I said, when our city was incorporated, it was uh, probably a move to avoid incorporation mm-hmm. by Chattanooga. So there was... In the past, I think a desire to differentiate ourselves from Chattanooga, and I think that's still there. You know, we we have our own identity. Um, a lot of people still think that Red Bank is a neighborhood of Chattanooga, the way St. Elmo or Highland Park mm-hmm. or Brainerd or any of those are neighborhoods of Chattanooga. We're not. We are our own municipality, with our own taxes and our own government and our own services. Um, and I think we do a pretty excellent job, especially considering even after the recent tax increase that a lot of people uh, raised a big hullabaloo about, we are still a considerably lower tax rate than the surrounding city of Chattanooga. But we offer comparable services, um, in some cases even better services, in a lot of departments. Um, so we are efficient. We are nimble. Um but Chattanooga is a great partner, and I think there's been a missed opportunity in the past to collaborate more with Chattanooga. Um, I was just on the phone with Jenny Hill recently, mm-hmm. who's 
Chattanooga City Council member whose district borders Red Bank on multiple sides um, about Fraser Avenue and, and how we can make Fraser, Cherokee, Dayton safer for both of our constituents and, um, you know, how we can work together on those things. Same with Ashland Terrace, actually, which is where Red Bank has the most uh, traffic crashes, Mm -hmm. uh, vehicle crashes happen on on Ashland Terrace, which goes just a few hundred feet and then goes into her district in Chattanooga. Um, So we have lots of, of chances, opportunities to, to collaborate with them on transportation, especially, but also on other things. Um, I've got a good relationship with, uh, Mayor Kelly. Um, he's been fantastic, uh, since he was elected to always be welcoming and inclusive of, of Red Bank, you know, his little, like I said, donut hole in the, in the center mm-hmm. of, of Chattanooga. And, um, you know, any chance that we get to, to collaborate with them on, you know, parks initiatives, transportation initiatives, um, any of those things, we're going to take it. We've, we also get to draw, you know, they're a way bigger city than us. They have way more resources, way more staff. For example, Chattanooga has a city forester. Mm-hmm. We do not. We so, <laughs> Red Bank has under a hundred employees. Oh, wow. <laughs> we do not have a big staff. We certainly do not have, you know, a big enough city to justify having a forester, but Chattanooga does. And I'm so glad they do. And we have gotten to talk to their forester on a regular basis, um, to give us advice on our native plants ordinance and our new screening, uh, updates that we've implemented recently. Um, we're looking at revisions to our, our street trees, maybe even a tree ordinance or a tree board in the future. And, Having access to our neighbors, Forrester, who's always happy to talk to us, has been such an incredible resource. So that's just one example of of many of, you know, the resources that Chattanooga has that they're happy to share with us um, that we benefit from greatly. Um, And I'm hoping that Red Bank can benefit the city of Chattanooga, too. We are actually an exporter of fire services to the city of Chattanooga. So because we're that donut hole and we have two fire stations to cover our 6.5 square miles, our northern fire station, which is just a mile maybe or less from our northern city limit, is actually closer to many parts of uh, that section of Chattanooga than the nearest Chattanooga fire station. Mm -hmm. And so we will often be the first on scene for uh, any fires that break out in that part of Chattanooga. Um, And we'll support them until the the Chattanooga fire shows up. Um, Vice versa, we don't own a ladder truck, but Chattanooga does. And so if we have ever a fire in need of specialty equipment like that, the Chattanooga uh, mutual aid can Mm -hmm. respond and bring a ladder truck for us to use. So generally they went out on the fire equation, but uh, we both benefit from having that mutual aid agreement. Um, And there are mutual aid agreements across the county for, you know, multiple different departments and areas. Um, so that's something that's, uh, you know, one of the many ways that we benefit from having such a great neighbor 360 degrees around us. <laughs> um, we're also hoping, you know, again, because our city is smaller, more nimble, we only need three votes to do anything. I'm hoping that certain things that we do, like our complete streets ordinance, like our native plants ordinance, I'm hoping that uh, Chattanooga will see those programs as pilots and 
we have a we also recently passed a steep slopes ordinance that's a little bit um, more restrictive than Chattanooga's. Theirs starts at thirty three percent, ours starts at twenty five percent. So I hope it gives a, a test case opportunity for them to compare, contrast how things are going here, um, how new legislation is being implemented and, and received by the community and by developers, um, and you know, give them opportunity for sample legislation if they should ever choose to take up similar initiatives. Um, they have a very close uh, neighbor to point to and say, well, it worked here, so mm-hmm. maybe we can do this too. Great. Well, that was all very interesting. Um, where can people learn more about Red Bank and, you know, keep tabs on all of these developments, you know, sure. things going on in transportation and zoning and all these other <laughs> things. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So we have, um, of course, the city website, redbanktn.gov. And you can keep up with things there. We have a city Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram account, all worth following. We have our meetings on the first and third Tuesday of every month. Um, So our next meeting is Tuesday, January 16th. And those meetings, we have a work session that starts at 5 p.m. That's discussion only. Um, although that's a lot of where the juicy, you know, talk happens. Uh, And then at 6 o'clock is our voting meeting. And there is public comment available at both of those meetings. Um, all those meetings are live streamed on you on the city's YouTube channel and recorded. So you can go back and watch them after the fact. Um, I have myself and our vice mayor have our own, uh, social media accounts as well. Facebook, Instagram. Um, so lots of different ways for you to keep up with the city. The city also has an email newsletter, uh, which is pretty great. You can go on the city website and sign up for that. And it goes out once a month. It's not not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it has a nice information and tidbits about uh, what's going on in the city, upcoming meetings, things like that. So that's a really great way to keep up with it. If there are Red Bank residents listening or even people who visit Red Bank frequently, work here, play here, um, please keep an eye out. Um, we have a... When do you think this episode might air? Uh, Hopefully this weekend. This weekend. Okay. So uh, January 16th is the last day to respond to our Parks and Recreation Public Input Survey. So if you're hearing this, you're interested in that kind of thing, please give us feedback about um, what you think the needs are for parks in Red Bank, where we need new parks, what kind of facilities that we're lacking. Do we need a skate park? Do we need a new pool? Do we need a, you know, disc golf course? Please, please tell us what you think we need. Um, you know, new up, do we need some maybe obstacles at the dog park? (laughs) The dog park and the pickleball courts are our most popular, um, recreational facilities currently, but we've got uh, more in the works, but that's what this survey is for is to tell us what do people want to see next? Um, we have some land available, um, to develop. And then in addition to that, keep your eyes peeled for uh, more public input surveys for our comprehensive plan, which will cover all aspects, including transportation. And we also have a a small area plan that we're working on for the former Red Bank Middle School site, Mm -hmm. which we haven't talked about yet today, but it's probably the hot topic Um, has been since 2020. Um, It was slated. It was there was an RF. P put out um, for private developers to purchase that publicly owned 12 acres right on Dayton Boulevard in our central business district. And 
we got three proposals. This was before my time. And they were all more or less glorified single-family home subdivisions. Um, and some with more or less commercial or green space components added. Um, and overwhelmingly, we heard that's not what people wanted to see there. So that is still undeveloped. It's still in public ownership. What do you want to see there? Do you want to see all 12 acres be a park? Do you want to see a mix of commercial uses and green space? What kind of, uh, if it's going to be a park, what kind of amenities do you want to see there? Walking trails, uh, an amphitheater, uh, a food truck park, a dog park. What what do you want to see happen? And if you want it, any part of it to be commercial, you know, what kind of businesses would you want to see there? We want to know, and we're going to be using that feedback to create an RFP, a community-driven RFP for that property um, that will be vetted multiple times before it goes out um, for proposals. And we'll see what what happens. But that has been top of people's mind, what to do with that. And if you're not familiar, if you're driving down Dayton Boulevard, you will see uh, a big open field with some steps, some concrete steps in the ground that go up to nowhere. That's what we're talking about, just south of Morrison Springs Road on Dayton Boulevard on the west side. Um, so give it some thought and please let us know because we are going to be taking that feedback very soon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for explaining your wonderful city. Well, thank you, Nathan of Chattanooga Civics for coming to our little pocket of Red Bank and, and learning more about us. We appreciate your time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. Find more civic resources at chattanoogacivics.com. Chattanooga Civics is a member of the Podnooga Network. To find more great podcasts from local creators, find Podnooga on Facebook and Instagram or on the web at podnooganetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Proud member of the Podnooga Network.